All right. Good morning, everyone, and uh, welcome to this seminar on dual-use AI technology. I hope you all got some coffee, tea, or food, and are ready for what I'm sure will be a fascinating conversation. Uh, my name is Ilaria Carrozza, and I'm a senior researcher uh, here at Prio, working on China, great power competition, and the interplay of security and technology. Um, today's seminar marks the uh, end of a project that I have been uh, working on with my colleague Nicholas Marsh and Greg Reichsberg, who are sitting here, and that was funded by the Norwegian Ministry of Defense, who I would like to thank again for the generous support that made this research possible. Um, so joining us are also two excellent guests. Uh, Margarita Konaev is a, the Deputy Director of Analysis and a Research Fellow at Georgetown Center for Security and Emerging Technology in Washington. She's also an adjunct senior fellow with the Center for New American Security. She works on military applications of AI and Russian military innovation, and she has published widely on international security, armed conflict, non-state actors, and urban warfare in the Middle East, Russia, and Eurasia. Philippa Lenses is a uh, senior lecturer in science and international security in the Department of War Studies and in the Department of Global Health and Social Medicine at King's College London. And she's also associate senior researcher at the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute and a non-resident scholar at the James Martin Center for Nonproliferation Studies. She works on biological threats, health security, bio-risk management, and biological arms control, and she has published widely on issues related to bioscience, emerging technologies, and information warfare, and disinformation related to global health security. I am very excited that you could both join us today. I should also introduce my two colleagues who will be offering some reflections uh, after the uh, opening remarks from Rita and Filippa. So Nick Marsh is a senior researcher at Prio and his work focuses on the global trade in small arms and light weapons, arms trafficking, arms acquisition by non-state parties involved in civil war and arms export and transfer controls. Uh, Greg Reichberg, last but not least, is a research professor at Prio who specializes on ethical issues arising from the use of AI technologies across a number of fields, including in the military defense sector, disarmament, religion and broader issues of war and peace. Um, so again, um, in today's uh, seminar, Rita and Filippa will kickstart the discussion, followed by comments from Nick and Greg. And then our two guests are going to have a chance to respond to those um, comments before we open up for uh, questions from the, from the audience. Um, and finally, I should let you know that today's seminar is going to be recorded. Uh, but before I give the word to our guests, I'd like to briefly set the background for this event and for the project. So our starting point uh, was the the very basic level, the current competition for technology dominance globally. So in particular, um, recent debates, especially within policy circles in the US and um, Europe, have raised concerns that AI-enhanced technologies have the potential to shift the military balance of power. Um, and so while past military transformations have uh, stemmed from innovation generated from within the military domain, today it is the civilian sector that is um, at the center of technological change. Um, so therefore, dual-use technology uh, has taken on a new meaning and urgency in the context of AI-enhanced uh, warfare. So one of the main challenges is that unlike, for instance, nuclear technology, uh, new technologies are based on algorithms that are very easily transferable across borders, across countries. Um, and though they, of course, do rely on physical infrastructure to do so, um, 
but as as they are intim intimately enmeshed with uh, the civilian communication and IT sectors, um, um, uh, they are fundamental to the free flow of goods and services across the globe, placing restriction on the broad array of items that can be classified as dual use raises challenging questions. So that was really at the heart of our project and is also at the heart of our forthcoming report, which will be published online over the next few weeks and where we really focus on developments um, and uh, regulations of dual-use AI technology in China, the US, and the European Union uh, as the major players, um, so to speak, in this uh, technological competition. So China in particular, of course, has uh, in, the, in the last decade really been a success story uh, when it comes to AI research and development, um, catching up quickly with the US uh, in several domains, um, and many are uh, alarmed uh, that, uh, about the country, in particular about the country's military-civil fusion strategy, um, which aims to achieve the complete integration uh, between the military and the civil sectors. Um, at least partly in response to China's progress in these areas, um, since 2018-2019, the US government has also promoted a series of policies, such as the American Artificial Intelligence Initiative, that are aimed primarily at protecting US leadership in this field um, and restricting flows of data and talent across borders. Uh, and indeed, as a, a result of this current technological competition, uh, both China and the US are mobilizing enormous resources to build up their uh, military AI, AI military systems, um, anything including unmanned attack platforms uh, to, uh, for swarm warfare, tools for enhancing uh, uh, awareness in battlefield conditions, and so on. Um, and they're also uh, both boosting their domestic capacity for innovation and production of advanced um, dual-use technologies, you know, including semiconductors, uh, surveillance and 5G network equipment. Um, so in comparison, the EU, we found, uh, has generally preferred to taking a more rule-making role, a kind of uh, attempting to position itself as a major platform for the international community to address developments in dual-use AI technologies and the ethical concerns that these uh, raise, um, although recently also the EU has shown um, interest in investing in AI-based um, systems for military use. Um, and of course, while China has certainly been at the center of the conversation around AI, and particularly in the US, of course, Russia is also of great concern, um, especially to Europe and to Norway. Um, despite the fact that, for instance, during the war in Ukraine, we, um, it has exhibited few enhanced AI capabilities. Nonetheless, of course, its proximity to, again, Norway and Europe uh, makes it a top uh, uh, source of concern. And I, uh, I'm really glad that uh, Rita will give us an overview of uh, AI developments in the country, which are typically shrouded in secrecy, incredibly hard to access from the outside. Um, and now there are, of course, several areas where AI technologies can be misused um, for designing weapons. And one such field is next generation biotech, uh, a field where the US and China are, in fact, big investors. Um, and yet there has been so far very little debate over the convergence of AI and life sciences. But luckily, uh, again, Philippa is here and she recently co-authored an article on this published in Nature Machine Intelligence uh, that got a lot of attention and media coverage. Uh, and policy attention, so she'll, she'll talk us through these issues. Um, so this is, of course, just a very simple, basic picture, which they'll hopefully populate with their more details. Um, and I'll, I'll stop here, and I'll give the word to first Rita and then Filippa for their opening remarks. Thanks. Thank you, Elaria, for this great, you know, introduction and 
for setting the stage for what I'm really hoping is going to be an open conversation and an opportunity to hear from the audience. It's such a pleasure to be here at Prio. This is my first international trip since, uh, you know, <laughs> since spending about two years in sweatpants talking to a computer uh, in an empty room. So forgive me if my social skills are a little bit rusty. I slept through dinner yesterday. <laughs> So, but we're, you know, we're off to a great start here. So I've been working on the issue of Russian military technology and Russian military AI investments for about three years now. And I've done previously before that a lot of work on the Russian military, Russian approaches to urban warfare, things of that nature. And being in Washington, D.C. and U.S. Center conversations, it was often the case that I was one of the few, if not the only person in the room, focusing specifically on Russia. It is a conversation that is very much dominated by the geostrategic competition between the United States and China, with some attention to how the United States can work with allies and partners in Europe and obviously in the Indo-Pacific to balance and compete um, and stop Chinese military progress and artificial intelligence and other dual-use emerging technologies. And... I have tried to make the case that it's important to look at Russia because the enemy gets a word. The enemy gets a say. And even if we don't pay much attention to Russia, Russia pays attention to the world and unfortunately to its neighbors. So even without the focus on technology, unfortunately, when policy and strategy are not sufficiently flexible and agile and ready for crisis, we once again find ourselves surprised by events that could have perhaps been predicted if there was more uh, attention and investment in the issue. This is to say that while I'm going to emphasize that Russia very much lags behind the United States and China when it comes to emerging technologies, it is not wise to, um, you know, take the pendulum to the other side and once again kind of assume that Russia is not going to be able to leverage AI technology and other dual-use tech and use it in a way that uh, disrupts the peace and stability globally in Europe and U.S. interests and NATO interests uh, more widely. So let me say a few words about Russian AI developments, the ecosystem there, um, as it compares to an extent to the U.S. and China, and then quickly um, highlight two things that I think we are all already learning from the war in Ukraine and uh, Russian performance there, um, what it tells us about the integration of dual-use technologies and particularly AI and autonomy into military operations. So I'll start with uh, 2019 when Russia released its uh, strategy for artificial intelligence. And one of the statements that it made there is that Russia has a the potential to be a global leader in artificial intelligence. And to a great extent, that is a foundation, that is a statement that is grounded in reality. There is a potential there that is based on the fact that Russia is still one of the top 10 investors in research and development. It is also a country with a strong history and a foundation of uh, STEM researchers and STEM talent, accomplishments in mathematics and physics and other uh, you know, AI-related fields. 
It has obviously been one of the top military technology exporters in the world. And while we are currently, again, let's let's bifurcate this conversation to what Russia says and what Russia hopes and what Russia expresses to what we've seen over the last couple of months in terms of battlefield performances. Um, so there are, you know, there were interesting developments and quite advanced uh, applications in the Russian financial sectors that was using AI, uh, some investment in facial recognition technology, some startups that were making a real global impression, um, some progress in fields like uh, natural language uh, processing, as well as pattern recognition and text recognition. So there were quite a few let's say, exciting developments in the private sector. There's an established military technology sector, and there was what seemed to be a momentum to investments in artificial intelligence. This is around 2017 to, let's say, 2019-2020. Having said that, uh, all indicators point to the fact that Russia significantly lags behind the United States and China when it comes to the investment that it's making in artificial intelligence, both at the government level, but also very particularly at the business level. And Ilaria said very correctly that globally, when we're looking at investments in AI, they are very much being led and dominated by the private sector. The amount of money that you know Facebook, Google, Amazon are pouring into, and I'm not even talking about the Chinese company that are pouring into AI development really dwarfs what the U.S. government is doing as well as other other governments around the world. Uh, But the Russian business sector is not as advanced in that regard at all. Um, Supercomputer capabilities, hardware, Russia also falls behind in terms of data collection, data analysis capabilities, uh, research publications, all of these metrics. Uh, Talent, we know that brain drain has been a challenge, Attention of talent has been a challenge. All of these issues continue, and even more so under now, under the sanctions, continue to handicap Russian, especially civilian sector developments when it comes to AI. On the military front, since about, if we're looking at Russian military modernization efforts since about 2008, then gearing up uh, in 2012, 2014, We have seen that military AI and military autonomy and robotics very much come to the front of Russian military modernization priorities with discussions and investments and experimentation in areas like unmanned vehicles and increasingly autonomous vehicles, ground vehicles in particular, with a push also to develop a drone industry. Uh, We're seen efforts to implement artificial intelligence into the command and control structure, to integrate it to its electronic warfare capabilities, and Russia has generally been recognized as a top electronic warfare uh, capabilities country. Uh, there is this one is very difficult to track because out of all the ones that is kind of hard to study when it comes to the Russian military, AI for cyber and AI for information operations, clearly there's a massive potential there and what AI can do for the scope, impact, uh, widespread use of these uh, tools that Russia has already demonstrated to be quite you know, willing and able to um, deploy. And 
there was clear thinking with how AI and military robotics and military autonomy could be implemented to support Russian military doctrine with the understanding that Russia sees itself as a great power that is positioned in an asymmetric competition and conflict with the rest of the world. Uh, not the rest of the world, excuse me, but with the United States and NATO. Uh, so AI was thought as a set of technologies and capabilities that would help overcome that disadvantage, as well as you know, implemented and integrated into areas where it already saw to have had competitive uh, capabilities, uh, like uh, what it considered electronic warfare, for instance, and uh, cyber defense and offense. Um, Another important point about Russian autonomy, military autonomy, and AI capabilities, and I think I would still say this to be an advantage even after the last couple of months, is that um, during its conflict in Syria, in particular, and less so, but still to some extent, in 2014 in Ukraine, Russia has experimented with a relatively wide set of new and emerging technologies on the battlefield. So, for instance, there's records of it deploying uh, an AI-enabled electronic warfare system in Ukraine 2014 to integrate with uh, its drone operations and artillery strikes. There's also been some records of uh, uh, Russia using unmanned vehicles and even AI uh, that had some AI features, unmanned ground vehicles in Syria, uh, where it enjoyed a significant amount of operational freedom and therefore therefore had the ability to, you know, um, learn on the ground, collect data and see what was working, what was not working, and then implement those changes into the research and development cycle. This is all fine and great. And if you would have had this, if I would have done this presentation, let's say in November, um, this would have been a very different conversation. I think we have learned a great deal about Russian capabilities and Russian challenges over the last couple of months when it comes to um, anything from their ability to execute complex combined arms military operations to their ability to execute very basic tactics. We've learned a lot about problems, massive systemic problems when it comes to command and control. We've learned about their lack of, I don't even know if we really have the time to go over all the challenges and problems and mistakes that the Russian military has, uh, you know, encountered over the last couple of months, starting with an entirely wrongheaded, unexecutable strategy with the idea that you can take a city of over two million people uh, in a span of days. What was interesting, though, for those of us who have been studying the Russian military for a long time, um, was the assumption that obviously Russia was going to perform better, but what was equally alarming is that our predictions and assessments were not that different, it seems, from the U.S. intelligence community. 
So I think right now, a lot of us are at a point where we're sitting down and cover, sort of, uh, you know, considering what has led to some of the mistakes and miscalculations and misassessments of how we viewed the Russian military, of how we analyzed uh, the Russian threat and the Russian capabilities. And equally important is an understanding of, I think, and that's what I'm trying to push, is a serious conversation about what are challenges that emerge from specifically and perhaps even exclusively problems with Russia and the Russian military and Russian civil military relations and Putin to what are problems that are simply characteristic of modern warfare and problems that any advanced military would and could and likely to encounter. And one of those problems absolutely is hubris. And I think that's something that, I, you know, I'm trying to hit in my conversation back in D.C. is that as we're watching and kind of assessing and reassessing the Russian military, the last thing we want to take away from is that, A, they're not a threat. B, we would have done so much better. This is one of the first uh, large scale ground military combat operations, wars, interstate wars between two conventional militaries. The United States, which has been fighting a lot of wars over the last couple of decades, has not fought a conventional war since about a month in 2003, and before that in 1991, essentially. And neither did its NATO allies. And China has no operational experience in what we would now define and consider as modern warfare. So it's useful to remember that a great deal of the challenges that Russia is encountering, and we can talk about you know, some of them later, are just problems that come with sophisticated, multi-scale, massive military operations uh, in today. So two quick points about what we are learning about a role of emerging new technologies on the battlefield from Russia's experience. And one of those is, is that there is a massive difference in how we should be covering and writing and thinking about emerging technologies. If we want to understand them, we have to be very clear to differentiate what are concepts, what are technologies that are in the research and development stage, what are technologies that are currently being experimented with? And what are technologies that have actually been adopted, scaled, and integrated into military operations? We oftentimes talk about them like they're all in the same space and time and levels of integration. And that is absolutely incorrect especially when it comes to these new technologies that we know, especially when it comes with the AI, that they have massive vulnerabilities, that the way that they perform in lab conditions and control conditions are fundamentally different from what they face in the field. So we need to be extremely careful, especially in this discussion of EU, um, Europe, US, China, to understand what is a concept that people are thinking about, writing about, envisioning, to what has been integrated at a large scale and is ready to go on a battlefield. That's a big point that seems obvious, but is absolutely not. And the second point I think that it's important when we think about who will be ahead in this geopolitical, geostrategic competition uh, in integrating technology and moving from innovation to adoption 
is that the things that really have always mattered in war will continue to matter for what gets adopted and how quickly. Things like flexible and agile and smart command and control. When we're thinking about AI in particular, AI within the next five to 10, five to maybe even 20 years, it is a set of technologies that is meant to, that is to a great extent meant to enhance human decision-making. And the way that the United States often talks about it, give decision advantage and decision, what's the word, dominance. If you don't already trust your people, the people on the ground to make decisions, what is the utility of implementing technology that is going to improve decision-making? If you are not sufficiently flexible to adjust, to adopt, to learn from the battlefield experiment and from the battlefield conditions, and then learn how to implement those lessons into how you make decisions, more data and faster analytics is not going to help you. So in that regard, when we're thinking about how technology is going to be integrated into existing military culture, existing operational culture, that organizational setup, those factors that have always mattered in war and we're now learning that continue to matter very much so when we're thinking about the rigid Soviet-style command and control structure of the Russian military versus what the Ukrainians have learned and implemented since 2014, there is a real difference and it's going to really matter in terms of how we are going to be implementing AI at scale. I'll stop now, um, but I'm really excited to talk, and we can talk about you know AI developments in the U.S., Russian-Chinese collaboration, anything they're interested in. But thank you. Thank you so much. I think you've already kind of clarified a lot of the questions I had in terms of exactly what you said, the gap between you know the concept on the one hand and the integration and actual applicability, uh, you know, within within the Russian military. Filipa, you're up next. Thank you so much, and thank you so much for the invitation. It's uh, a pleasure to be on this panel. Thanks so much for that opening, Rita. That was absolutely fantastic. Um, good morning, everyone. Um, it's uh, great to be with you. I'm impressed you're up at this hour and ready to expand your minds. Uh, I'm not an expert in AI, so now for something rather different. Um, my expertise is rather within the life sciences um, and the security implications of what is going on in the life sciences. And um, developments in AI are starting to impact the field of, of life sciences. Um, but there hasn't really been much uh, discussion within the multilateral um, arms control community on this intersection between AI and, and the life sciences. Um, I really enjoyed the opportunity to read, to read your draft report. Um, I found it really insightful. And um, I think particularly the characterization that you make of the AI field um, has a lot of um, resonance in the life sciences. So the AI field, the emerging AI field and the life sciences um, have a lot of similarities, I think. So in particular... Um, you know, the life sciences are also seen as a strategic priority for both the U.S. and China, as, as you mentioned. Uh, it is, the life sciences are also driven by the commercial sector, by private industry. Um, it's widespread 
it's not like, say, the nuclear field, which is very particular to certain domains. Um, the biosciences are um, spread globally in uh, private labs, in academic labs, in um, in in government hospitals, in in defense sector, all over. So again, that widespread um, and. As with one of the issues in the AI field, you know, it's primarily intangible knowledge that we're concerned about. It's not this hardware that is the major issue. And so when it comes to dual use and how do you regulate, how do you provide oversight of that, that is one of those big challenges. Um, so what I thought I would do today is really to set up our conversation by providing two concrete examples Um where AI intersects with the life sciences to produce significant security implications. And the first of those examples um, relates to a very traditional uh, biosecurity concern about pathogens. So pathogens are viruses and bacteria. Um, and this is all about this paper that Ilaria already uh, mentioned in the opening. And the second relates to um, a new biosecurity threat, um, enabled by AI. So this is about genomic data, about biometrics, and about individual targeting. And it's a field that nobody is really writing much about. And I'm starting to to get more into it. Um, but uh, I'll tell you about that in a minute. I want to start with this, the more traditional pathogen threat and how AI is impacting on it. So the life sciences is a little bit of an older field than AI, um, we've had longer as a community to uh, talk about dual use and then how, how we deal with security um, uh, implications. How do we grapple with them? And there have been some really high-profile examples of dual use, some really concrete examples. So they all started, uh, some of those started very, you know, more than 20 years ago uh, with the synthesis of of mousepox, uh, synthesis of polio virus, where you could chemically synthesize the virus in the lab. You don't need access to the actual virus. You could just do it yourself in the, in the lab. Um, we've also seen some, some studies on the 1918 flu virus, the Spanish flu virus, again, um, creating that from scratch in, in, the, in the lab. Um, you will have all, from the pandemic, heard about this term gain of function studies uh, was the coronavirus, you know, the result of uh, research in a lab. That research could have been gain-of-function research where you were deliberately trying to make a virus more dangerous. Um, so we've had other examples where this has been done. Um, so all of these have been very high-profile dual-use examples. But this year we've seen the first high-profile example at the intersection of AI and the life sciences, uh, where you have this convergence of emerging technologies, which is something that is uh, a lot of people are talking uh, about, right? Like what, so we've got all our little fields, but what happens if these fields combine? Um, what are the added security concerns and implications when that happens? And I had the privilege um, to, be, to have a kind of an inside seat in this high-profile um, example. So um, I'll just tell you very briefly about that. Um, and it all started in, um, in Switzerland at a conference that happens every couple of years 
held by the Swiss um, Ministry of Defense, where they uh, invite um, experts in chemical and bio in the chemical and biological field who do cutting edge research to think about well what could be the security implications of that and uh, how does the arms control community think about that? And so they identified different cutting-edge areas. And one of the areas that they identified was drug design uh, and how you can create drugs using AI. And so they reached out to a company called Collaborations Pharmaceuticals and said, we'd like you to come pre present. Um, we have a group of experts who, who, who think about the, you know, the dark side. Um, what would you like to tell us? Can you think about how your research science could be misused. Um, and uh, the, the, the company was great. They kind of said, okay, yes, let's really do this. Okay, we've never thought about how we could misuse our science, but let, let's, let's try. Um, and so what they usually do, they use algorithms to search for new molecules that can be drugs, that can be used for benefit in our bodies. And they don't want those to be toxic because our bodies cannot uh, withstand toxicity. And so they have algorithms that kind of select out toxic molecules and find molecules that would be therapeutic for us. And they said, okay, well, maybe we could just reverse the order, right? Let's, let's search for molecules that are extremely toxic. And they gave some examples of the sorts of molecules that the, the machine should look for. And the machine was literally, uh, you know, a 2015 Mac, uh, MacBook, um, and they used all public data. And within... Um, six hours, they let the machine just run overnight, and they came in the office in the morning, and there were over 40,000 different molecules, and a whole bunch of them uh, were in the kind of uh, extremely toxic space where you also have VX uh, nerve gas. And so that was one of the molecules that the computer designed, essentially, and there were many other even more toxic molecules that the computer designed. And so, uh, you know, there was this, when, when Sean, who um, is the CEO of the company, told this story at Spiez, uh, at the Swiss conference, um, there was this absolute jaw drop from everyone sort of in the, in the room. Um, and I thought, oh, this is a very accessible, concrete example of how you can turn something good into bad that could speak to people and could relate to people. So we worked up this article um, that we submitted to Nature uh, Machine Intelligence where we kind of explained the process, talked about the need for awareness raising, um, and used it as a launching point for a wider discussion of, well, what can we do in the community to raise awareness about these, um, you know, this kind of... Um, uh, dual, the, the dual use potential of the, the research uh, that, that is being done. Um, so we thought awareness raising is really important, but awareness raising in and of itself is not enough, right? You have to do it in a responsible, non-alarmist sort of way. And so uh, we tried to be very responsible in our communication. We, you know, we tackled the dual use concern head on, you know, we said this is a security risk, um, but we didn't. Pr there was a lot of information we didn't provide, um, and um, you know, we didn't provide exhaustive details about the approach um, and all these things. So it wouldn't be possible to replicate it. Um, but the idea is still out there, and I think it spoke to a lot of people in the community. We had a lot of feedback um, on that. Um, it got picked up in the media uh, extensively. 
so um there there was um a, a much wider reach than we had initially imagined um we were uh generally pleased actually with how the media reported they followed our line of um you know fairly uh considered uh reporting there were of course some headlines that were a little bit too extreme we hadn't created a chemical weapon there is a difference between a molecule on the screen and we didn't you know um we, we didn't uh create it in uh, uh off the screen in real life we could have done you could send it to any number of companies who would do that for you um but we didn't do that step. But even if you have a molecule, you still don't have a weapon, right? So there are stages. There are many stages here, but it's a proof of concept. And so um, it was the experiment was, uh, you know, this this uh, a thought experiment. Uh, it also resulted in invitations uh, to, uh, you know, all kinds of policy for us. So uh, the White House called us in for a discussion about our work. Uh, UK Cabinet Office we spoke to. Uh, Sean, I think, is in in The Hague today, talking to, not today, but this week, talking to the OPCW. Uh, we are also briefing the Australia Group, Export Control, um, on, on all of this. So, you know, we have also engaged in the on the, the the policy side and really put this issue on the map because I think that's one of the issues, right? It it can be so um, uh, difficult, especially maybe less in the AI field, but certainly in the life science field, well, for people to change that mindset from, well, we're looking for, you know, medicines for people. We only want to do good. How do you then switch your thinking to think about um, bad? So um, we developed it from this proof of concept and tried to turn it into this teachable moment, uh, essentially. And I think... Um, We've already had some impact um, where it wasn't a priority for policymakers before. It certainly is now. So um, I'm, I'm very happy to talk more about that issue, but I did want to raise this second example because I think, in my own view, this is where um, the second issue of, of the rise of biometrics and individual targeting, because in my own view, actually, that is... Uh, of more concern than these traditional viruses and bacteria that we're worried about or even, you know, biochemical molecules that, that we're um, worried about. And that, that is the kind of the main focus of the chemical and biological fields. So um, in your report, uh, Ilaria, you, you quoted the AI pioneer uh, Stuart Russell, who warned of the danger that AI technologies could result in scalable weapons of mass destruction if thousands of miniature robots, each bearing target, targetable munitions and endowed with facial recognition capabilities, are directed against specific groups or individuals, right? And I want to take that just one step further um, and talk not, not just about... Um, how we look, so not just about our biometrics, not just about um, uh, our, our eyes or our voices or how we walk, our gait, uh, all things that are picked up by AI, but also about our genes that are inside us, right? Um, now, you'll all remember early on in this war, actually before the war, this um, picture we all saw of 
Putin and Macron at this extremely long table, right, with nothing uh, in between them except this six-meter-long long table. And, and the reason for that, we were told, was an abundance of caution for the coronavirus, right? So the, the Russians were being extremely cautious. Um, now, Macron had taken a French PCR test, uh, before he left Paris. And once he landed in Moscow, his physician also uh, issued him an antigen test. But the Kremlin demanded that he take an additional PCR test through the Russian authorities, through Russian doctors. Um, and Macron refused, right? And that's why the Kremlin decided, they said, no, then we have to apply these extra stringent uh, social distancing measures, including this ridiculously long table. But why did Macron refuse that Russian test in the first place? Right? And the French did actually explain, and they were quite explicit about this. They said they could not accept that the Russian authorities get their hands on the president's DNA. Oh, okay, yeah, that makes sense. That would be bad. But does it, though? Why, why does it matter if the Russians get their hands on the president's DNA. What does our DNA reveal beyond what, you know, who we're related to or what we might look like? Could the genetic data provide a more sophisticated way to profile him, to profile foreign leaders in general, a more thorough way of doing your political homework on their personalities, uh, on their decision-making styles, on their health and how long they might last in office? Or, in a darker train of thought, could Macron's DNA be employed in the, in the Kremlin's dirty work, say, to you know, fabricate evidence of an affair or a love child somewhere? Or might there be genetic vulnerabilities lurking in Macron's DNA? Could it be that... Um, you know, he's hiding an illness or a particular condition that the uh, Russian intelligence services could threaten to expose at a particularly opportune time. Could Macron's DNA, you know, DNA be used to show that he's at risk of developing some sort of illness uh, or disorder in the future, casting doubt on his fitness for the presidency? Possibly. All of those are possibilities. But why would you go to such extraordinary, extraordinary lengths, right, when there are simpler and much more reliable methods of influencing, incapacitating, or murdering uh, an opponent? Um, so clearly capacities and motives for such complex operations are extremely limited. But at the same time, uh, and we need to be clear about those limitations, but at the same time, they must still form part of a comprehensive consideration of potential security threats. Because, after all, covert assassinations with unconventional, highly sophisticated weaponry is not only historically, but also more recently proved to be a very real threat that both Sergei Skripal and Alexei Navalny can attest to. But it's not only presidents... Uh, and other leaders whose genetic data has, you know, potential security 
target. So in the U.S., for example, the Department of Defense there has advised its military service personnel to stop using DS DNA testing kits from companies like 23andMe, like this um, Ancestry uh, company, because that information collected could pose a security risk. And one of the main things that they're worried about is that it could be accessed by outside observers, by adversarial uh, governments, for example, and exploited to undertake mass surveillance. So that's uh, one reason. Another is that the genetic data could be used to track individuals, compromising um, over covert activities by, uh, for example, the um, uh, um, security services, by uh, spies, uh, by others. So, so there are all kinds of concerns uh, within the intelligence and the security communities um, about genetic data in the wrong hands. But genetic information can also be used to monitor populations. Um, and this is where we come again back to China, right? So China's surveillance web has been very widely reported. You are all familiar uh, with this. Uh, surveillance has covered not just face and voice recognition, but also um, um, behavior, how people walk, um, and is now being extended to the genetic data of their populations. So uh, obviously a key target has been their ethnic and, and linguistic and religious minorities. Uh, you, you all know what is going on with the Tibetans and the Uyghurs um, who are suffering you know, mass arbitrary detentions and um, indoctrination and forced sterilizations. But there are also other programs, and I'll just briefly mention them. I'm conscious of the time. Um, they are building the largest male DNA database. The police is building this uh, incredibly large DNA database, enrolling millions and millions, uh, I think they're uh, in, uh, of bo men and boys, down to kindergarten. They're taking samples directly, DNA samples from boys in kindergarten, um, and putting them into these um, databases. In, in 2020, the number was about 5% to 10% of China's male population is included in this database. They're then building these extraordinarily large uh, family trees so that whenever they find a blood sample or some sample that contains DNA in it, they can link that back to a specific family and maybe even down to the individual. So um, the kind of control, that unprecedented social control... Uh, that this, this is, is gaining um, is, is very large. We're seeing a similar sort of genetic panopticon targeting women, particularly pregnant women, who undergo tests to see what the genetics of their babies. And in doing so, they get a hold of genetic samples, um, both of women in China, but also women around the rest of the world as well. And so they're building up these genetic databases um, and AI is enabling searching of these databases and targeting of particular groups. So um, this combination of genetic data and uh, AI uh, is, is enabling new means of you know, subjugating bodies and controlling uh, particular populations. And just on the very final note, to close, um, to leave, leave you with this... Um, Ex another extreme example where we are, it is becoming possible uh, to have um, ultra-targeted biological warfare. So you could, you ca you are 
there is a possibility um, technically to target particular ethnic groups, particular subgroups, genetic groups, um, particular families, uh, and almost down to particular individuals uh, on the basis of, of, of their DNA. Um, and that is opening a whole new sense set of, of, of uh, security concerns uh, that we also need to discuss. So I, sp I spoke for too long uh, and I'll hand no, straight no, back fantastic. over to you, Ilaria. Thank you. I think you put a lot of meat on the bone, so to speak. And I obviously anticipated my comment on China because, of course, you know, their collection of biometric data is really, it's something that I've been working on and, you know, I'm really interested in. Um, but uh, this is not just about China, of course. And I would like to invite um, Greg and Nick to offer some reactions. Short reaction. Sure. Short. But First, I took my Thank watch you. off to keep track, but then I see there's a clock up there. Okay. The um, first of all, thanks so much for coming, uh, Rita and Philippa. Thanks so much for your fascinating presentations, um, Alaria. Thanks so much for the introduction. I was eagerly waiting to see what it is I do, actually, and I have to get notes from you to find so I can put. Okay. So, the um, what you recount about Macron. Was, was, was intriguing. And then I started thinking, do you remember when Donald Trump picked dandruff off Macron's shoulder? Maybe it wasn't to be obnoxious. <laughs> Maybe he had a Petri dish, you know. Okay. Uh, it was to be obnoxious. <laughs> <laughs> but, but there are allegations that, that the Americans are collecting DNA of other leaders. Yeah. We've seen that. Okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the... Um, Anyway, just uh, a few comments here now. Um, you know, at the beginning, uh, Alaria talked about algorithms and how easily transferable they are, and that that's true. But it's also important to, to recognize within the field of, you know, the wider field of AI, um, there, there are also the trans... The, uh, trans uh, the ease of transference... Trans transference uh, with respect to data sets, okay? So um, the uh, data has become a valuable resource. Uh, there are also sensors, okay? And I've heard that China has been, in, been putting a lot of sensors uh, in the seabed, for example. Um, the, and I think that the, the really big challenge of dual use today is that in the past... You know, take take nuclear weaponry. I mean, coming up, getting first of all uranium and then enriching it—that's a complex process that very few are capable of, of of doing. I mean, just transporting uranium and so forth. But now we, we've got the, the sort of uh, technologies in place. They're they're cutting into ordinary life. Uh, so the. Uh, and that in itself is a huge represents a huge danger, because because so much of ordinary aspects of ordinary life can have military value uh, through AI. What we're seeing is a kind of what some people are calling a civilization of conflict. Conflict, you know, potential, actual potential or actual outcome, sort of penetrating into our everyday lives. We've seen it with something as basic as our DNA. Uh, the, uh, I think there's a, a big question about how, military, how militarily effective AI 
will prove to be. I mean, that was a lot of what you were referring to, Rita. Um, there, you know, there are big discussions about de-skilling, how the emphasis on DNA will mean that military personnel lose certain basic skills. Uh, there have been some, okay, some settings. Okay, U.S. is maybe the leader in, in AI military applications. What happened in Afghanistan? How useful was it? Okay, really very little. Very little utility. Okay, and you could say that was a, you know, counterinsurgency setting. The kind of, you know, traditional military confrontations, you would think it was much more uh, beneficial. Um, but, you know, the, the judge is still out on this question. Uh, the... Uh, I very much like your your point about um, you know did we overestimate Russia did we underestimate I have a lawyer friend in Washington D.C. Joe Reeder who said to me that we have a tendency we we tend to worry about underestimating the adversary he said it's equally dangerous to overestimate the adversary why is that dangerous because you start taking actions yourself, preparatory actions, when you over, when you when you when you you think the adversary is up to something big, and that sets you down the road of the security dilemma. And we still don't know why Putin decided to invade Ukraine when he did. Right? What was it that prompted that that action? We've got lots of speculation, but we really don't know. And we need to think about it in the context of security dilemmas, right? Um, and maybe the, the certain overestimation in the West of, with respect to Putin and then actions that were taken in response. Um, the, uh, I think that's enough. Good. Yeah, brilliant. Thanks. Okay. <laughs> we can get back to any issue, sure. obviously, yeah. during the you know, uh, conversation and Q&A. Nick? Um, yeah, thanks, uh, Elaria. Thanks to <coughs> Rita and Philippa for yeah, very interesting um, uh, conversation so far. Uh, I'd like to sort of pick up on four elements uh, of the conversation we've had so far and sort of talk about some of the implications uh, of the things we've discussed for a sort of global competition. Um, um, and so firstly, uh, what we... Uh, if we're talking about global competition, we're thinking uh, in terms of blocks or alignments of states. Um, uh, you know, the one feature of the last uh, few months since February is the extent to which you know we've really seen a revival of the West: uh, Europe, U.S., Canada, South Korea, Japan, Australia, New Zealand, coordinating actions against Russia amongst themselves, cooperating, working very closely. Uh, you know, we see the you know return of a you know what looks like a block which uh, you know didn't really uh, exist um, to the same degree. Uh, you know, a few years ago, we wouldn't have you know thought of that about that. But when we're thinking about AI and the use of AI and weapons, um, one element of this will be, to a greater extent than before, a dependency uh, on the supplier of that AI technology. 
Uh, that's because you know, we're not just looking at individual weapons. We're looking at systems which are integrated with each other. Uh, we're looking at the need, as been mentioned by, by several people, um, for data. Uh, you know, where are you getting the data from? Who's supplying that data? How are you integrating all of these AI elements within multiple different weapon systems? Um, and also the training supply. So that means you have a, 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 a large degree of dependency upon the supplier of that, uh, of that AI systems. We're, we'll be looking at, you know, are we buying from the US, from China, possibly Russia, if the, the technology um, is available. Um, so that'll have an effect on the, the extent to which countries will have to choose, okay, which block are we going to be joining? Uh, and it'll be very difficult, as has happened before with countries like Egypt or Pakistan, to try to be, uh, you know, get a finger in every pie, have Chinese weapons, American weapons at the same time. It'd be much more difficult to do that. Um, second, uh, I think we should, uh, and to pick up on something Greg mentioned, um, and also um, uh, uh, also Rita mentioned, um, we shouldn't overestimate the, the potential of AI. Um, uh, Greg mentioned the problems with de-skilling. Rita mentioned the problems that Russia seems to have had in uh, you know, far more basic activities in command and control than uh, we're thinking of AI. Um, I can also uh, mention uh, cyber war, um, which you know, hasn't played a major role in the Ukraine conflict. That's not because there are no cyber vulnerabilities. That's not because there are no offensive cyber capabilities. Um, I would say that you know, we haven't seen Ukrainian power lines being shut down for long periods, etc. Um, that's because, uh, as with every weapon throughout uh, history, you have a defense as well as an offense. Um, uh, so another element in terms of competition, okay, what are the counter-AI technologies that will be developed. Um, in particular, if we're talking about use of AI and decision-making, target selection, et cetera, how can you fool it? Um, how can you uh, create decoys? Um, how can you interfere with the sensors uh, to get the AI to, AI to make wrong decisions? Um, uh, so, uh, you know, uh, so for, for as long as we have development of AI technology and weapons, there, there will be development of counter technologies as well, which will limit its effectiveness. Um, third point, uh, and yeah, all of the speakers have mentioned this, uh, and I'll mention it again because uh, yeah, uh, it's very important um, because the AI technology is being based on civilian te technology. Um, the you know, the investment, uh, the, the brain power in civilian companies so, is so much larger than purely uh, arms companies. Um, that that has uh, some implications uh, for global competition. In particular, it it will be very hard to limit the spread of the technology. Um, it will be very hard for the U.S. to put rings around its technology. We talk in the report about how it's starting to try and do that, um, but in practice. Um, that's very difficult. Uh, and especially um, to, to emphasize what Philippe was saying uh, about the, the sort of DNA-based um, approaches, uh, I mean, personalized medicine uh, is going to be something we'll probably all hear about a lot more. That's where medical treatments are not based upon uh, drug trials involving 20,000 people. Um, and we see whether there's a statistical effect on that. But um, uh, individualized uh, treatments based upon your own DNA. Um, Norway's uh, putting a lot of money into this already. Um, but that means that the technology 
to examine people's bodies to um, to be able, you know, as you were saying, if you are able to find a treatment for a particular condition, you can also develop uh, weapons to against that. So the the ability to um, to control this technology is going to be extremely difficult. Um, and finally, that brings us to um, what we hope is a solution, or one solution, a traditional solution to global competition, global conflict, uh, is arms control. Uh, in the past, we, in the Cold War, etc., we used arms control partly, obviously, to try to reduce the number of weapons, but also as a means of building confidence um, for the, you know, the, the the governments to sit down, try to talk constructively. How can we? build confidence, reduce the level of conflict. Um, Again, if we're looking at AI technology, uh, for similar reasons, arms control becomes very difficult to imagine um, because of what has been said earlier, extremely difficult to verify. Um, You know, the the watchword of arms control is trust but verify. How are you going to verify uh, a state's employment of AI systems um, without being able to examine every line of code in their weapons. And, you know, they're not going to let you do that. Um, uh, and also, how do you monitor the development of this technology? Uh, and I think one problem with arms control discussions around this technology um, has been there has been a lot of attention, lots of media, um, but it's been on uh, killer robots, uh, uh, you know, fully autonomous weapon systems which can operate completely on their own. Um, and I've had 10 years of frustration uh, about this um, because, I mean, as, as we've all been saying, the, you know, the, the realistic future of AR technology is teeming between humans uh, and technology. The, the notion of a, a fully autonomous robot warrior, you know, is still science fiction. Um, and so we need, uh, I think, within arms control to have much more realistic idea of, okay, what technology is, exists now or may exist in the next few years, not, you know, the ethical implications of a science fiction robot warrior. Thank you. Thanks so much, Nick. Um, I wonder if uh, Rita and Filippa want to offer some reactions to these reactions before we open up. <laughs> um, yeah, just quickly, because I think it will be worth having the conversation with the audience. I think this verification and monitoring and arms control conversation is so interesting, and all the dual-use challenges are obvious, and we've discussed them. But I think one of the biggest barriers to arms control of AI is that we do not have a demonstrated case where people can see the implications of killer robots or AI technology that has caused damage. One of the reasons you had successful arms control treaties before, uh, whether it's on landmines or biological warfare, is that because we have seen what those types of weapons and the the horrific damage that they can do to regular civilians. So you had grassroots movements and political interest in kind of preventing those uh, from happening again. And we don't have that. It's very difficult to conceptualize or imagine how we will it's actually easier to imagine than to than build you can't really build policy based on you know the terminator movies um so i think that's going to be continue being a a real serious barrier until well worst case scenario it's too late 
the last thing I kind of this is a this is an issue that I've thought about a lot, not a lot, but I'm beginning to think about more and more in the con in the context of AI enabled disinformation operations. But what Philippa was talking about at the intersection of AI and bioweapons and the specific individual targeting is that AI really uh, deletes the binary between individualization and scaling. Usually, just generally in life, you can either go into something very, very deeply in detail and very specifically, or you can become a generalist. And AI eliminates that choice. We can, you know, potentially develop capabilities to target individuals very, very closely based on how they use social media, now even based on their DNA. And at the same time, AI also gives us the scaling capability of reaching more and more and more people much faster all at once. So if we're thinking about what it is that is new that AI does or could do, I should say could do if we're discussing concepts, innovation, adoption, is what it could do is it could really eliminate that binary between individualization of warfare and the scaling of warfare. Yeah. So I'll, I'll stop here. Thank you. Philippa, some last words before we open up? Yeah. Um, very good observations from, from all three of you, actually. Yeah. Um, I, I wanted to pick up two things. One, on the arms control. Um, clearly, we must evolve arms control. Uh, we cannot keep operating as we did uh, in the last century. Um, and that means including a lot more stakeholders uh, in the processes, but also in terms of monitoring. We need to think differently than traditional verification. Uh, and I think in the biological field, we've come some way to do that. There have been a lot of bottom-up efforts. Um, and I think the example that I gave of how we've gone out to the drug design industry and started engaging um, is one way to do that. It's one example of how we have to think about how do we do arms control differently when the to, when the technology is so dispersed. We actually have to engage with practitioners head-on and get them to get engaged and see what the benefit for them is doing it. It's not no longer government to government, right? Um, so um, we need to involve that, not just top-down but bottom-up as well. And the other um, point I wanted to pick up uh, was what you were saying, Greg, about um, how militarily effective AI will prove to be. So let's see. Um, I think we need to expand the definition of dual use um, to not just be about civilian uh, military applications, uh, not just think about harms in terms of warfare, but also in terms of things like surveillance technologies, uh, subjugation of certain populations, uh, expanding into policing, into um, n not just military, but other forms of uh, intelligence and, and um, population control within national countries. Because I think these 
can with these new tools that are coming on stream through AI, uh, through bio, can form extreme threats to our democracies um, when you have this kind of population surveillance. Uh, it completely changes people's behavior. Um, and so um, I, I think this idea of expanding our idea of what dual use or what harm constitutes is, uh, is important. Thanks. Thank you so much. You gave me a lot of food for thought. I'm, I'm sure it also gave you a lot of food for thought. And so I'd like to open up for questions and comments. And uh, when you do, please introduce yourself first. Thanks. You've got a mic coming as well. <laughs> um, thank you. Uh, my name is uh, Johan Jensen Scheie. I'm a researcher at the Norwegian Institute for Defense Studies on AI. So I'm extremely interested in everything that's been said today. And I just wanted to ask about, um, you have touched on it, and I think it kind of dovetails well with what you were talking about now, is one of the kind of assertions I've seen, maybe more in like think pieces, is that democracies, um, they will not fare well in this global competition for AI technology dominance because they have rules about how to use data in society like you have china that can just gather data without you know any restrictions um and i just wanted to hear your thoughts on that like do you think that is a true assertion or do you, i mean is it more nuanced than that um yeah so thank you thanks i guess the question was not to anyone in particular but to the whole panel it's for everyone. so yeah so if you if anyone would respond to that um, Nick sure yeah. um, I I don't agree with that um, uh, I think you you can make a short-term argument uh, that you know a police state will function more effectively if there's no rules uh, and you know the police can identify people start busting down doors etc um, long term if we're looking at legitimacy of the government societal cohesion um, I it's very difficult to find autocracies that, uh, you know, last a very long time um, and are stable. Uh, democracy is still, you know, inherently, I would say, a more stable form of government. And then to have that more stable form of government where you can have change, you know, peaceful change, uh, you need, as I said, legitimacy. Uh, you need people to feel as if they uh, have some a certain level of trust in the government, a certain level of trust in law enforcement. So, I mean, I, I think those kind of rules are, are, are very important. And, you know, it, we should avoid uh, the sort of short-term idea that, yeah, we can, break, you know, we can bust down a few more doors uh, if we don't have these rules. Because you do that, then you, you're losing that trust and legitimacy. I would also add that, you know, as we've all said here, uh, private sector innovation is driving breakthroughs and advances in AI, and much of it is centered in democracies in the West. I mean, if we, you know, we can talk about the military-civil integration um, and fusion in China, but there's also a lot of indications about the talent flow from China to the United States and the retention, like the benefits that the United States enjoys from people coming from China and staying 
Uh, same thing with India. And a lot of the innovation that happens in the private sector happens in the free world. Uh, and just it's a much more of a competitive um, private lifestyle, let's say it like that, that attracts it. This is not to discount the ability of authoritarian countries to innovate, by no means. But it is to say that if we're looking at the competitive advantage of private sector, it has um, an interlink to democracies. I'll just, um, it, it um, seems to me that uh, rules, regulations, uh, a lot of them are about safety, just assuring safe practices. And um, when countries develop AI-type technologies, without a lot of concern for safety, it's very easy for what they develop to come back and bite them. You know, it's like the, you know, friendly fire type problems. Um, so I, you could make an argument that concern for norms and rules and regulations that, that ultimately promote safety uh, makes for more, actually a more, uh, it's a source of strength rather than a weakness. But I would just add, and, and I completely agree with points about innovation is, is where that takes place, where we can be most creative is in this you know, competitive uh, private setting. But your point is exactly the point that these industries are making themselves, uh, right? They're saying, don't put any more restrictions on us because they're racing ahead. Um, in the other countries. So uh, I think we can't just dismiss your question and say, no, clearly not. You know, uh, I think it, it really is um, an issue that we, we need to, to grapple with. Um, they're very good at copying, but copying won't get you necessarily to where you need to go, but they will get you a, a long way. Um, we are also seeing smarter moves by the Chinese and, getting their, their, their population educated in all of our uh, institutions, our universities, networked, uh, going back uh, to China. We're seeing also um, um, uh, investment in our scientific journals. So Chinese, for example, are on the editorial boards who are paying all the, all the, the commercials, uh, adverts, in our best publications in nature and science, all Chinese investors. Who's making decisions on the editorial boards? There's a lot of Chinese influence there. And that is the core of what our knowledge base is, right? These journals. And so uh, there is already a lot of influence. So I think it's a very pro problematic relationship. If I may jump in myself before I saw Hendrik raising a half a hand. But uh, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it used to be the case, obviously, that China and Chinese companies were copycats. But I was back in the mm -hmm. early 2000s, perhaps, if not even earlier. And now they're not anymore. Mm -hmm. And as you've pointed to that, you know, that they're finding new, new and newer ways to kind of gather information, gather intelligence and, and talent, right, uh, in, in new and innovative ways. Now, of course, the military-civil fusion um, is an ambition that the Chinese government has. It is far from being 
actually the case that that has happened. Like, it's really not. There's a lot of lack of coordination. There's a lot of competition, especially in AI. There's a lot of internal competition, not only across ministries, or especially across ministries that, you know, are fighting for funding. And that kind of, it, it kind of creates a mismatch in a sense, uh, which is kind of typical of the Chinese state to begin with, right? The mismatch between a kind of top-down approach, which is very um, aspirational, and the reality of, you know, the internal lack of coordination i would say so you know it's it's definitely there and we shouldn't um, underestimate that just because now i'm saying okay but it's not been reached yet but it's yeah, at the same time i'm going to say we're not quite there um all right but henrik you had a half a hand thank you for uh an excellent panel and for the work that you do on this uh one brief comment and one brief question uh the brief comment first is on what do we need for uh this kind of technology to develop in ways that are not dangerous and it seems to me that the ethics and the corporate governance of the private companies themselves is a very important uh, factor. Because if we look back to the authoritarian regimes of the 20th century, we know how much private companies worked in lockstep. And I'm sure there were lots of scientists who were wondering, are we really going to develop Cyclone B? But they did. Uh, Greg and I was, were recently at a company visit at a major ammunition uh, producer, and uh, not to whitewash them in any way, but we were quite impressed by the way in which the ethics debate is built into everything they do and the pressure they have from shareholders to address these issues. And this seems to be a very important part of the future since the private companies are playing such a big role. Then my brief question to you, Rita. Thank you so much for uh, your insights into Russia. One field that has been both driven by AI and the life sciences and uh, that has been driving AI and life sciences is space exploration. And space is one of those places where Russia and the U.S. have actually worked together quite closely going back to the early 70s and during the Cold War. Uh, is that about to break down now because of the war in Ukraine? Or is there some, well, I don't want to sound science fictionist, but is there some hope in space? <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you. Um... Space is not one of my fields, so I don't feel very competent uh, answering that. But I do believe that Russia has withdrawal uh, from collaboration and space missions, which is problematic. I think we're at a point where Russia is going to take this move to withdrawal, but there is this Western coalition or bloc, as we discussed, to push Russia out of institutions and out of areas where even we did used to have areas of collaboration, even amid the Cold War and more open conflict. I think there's pressure right now and kind of a, almost a consensus, be, at least between the you know the U.S. and European countries to isolate to turn Russia into a bit of a pariah state through sanctions and a variety of other measures and movements. What is the end date or the end goal of those policy decisions and moves uh, remains to be seen. And there's been less clarity on that, which I think complicates kind of how Russia calculates its response. Because if the incentive to punish and stop the war in Ukraine, that's a different end goal and end date than to humiliate Russia or end Russian power or put Russia in its place or remove Vladimir Putin. So I think the just in space and 
in other, you know, international regimes, international coalitions, any sort of collaborations that exist between the West and Russia on military issues and beyond. Uh, Decision making, I think, is kind of complicated by this uh, lack of clarity of when does Russia going to be allowed back in uh, polite society, if ever. Yeah. Yeah, on, on the, the point about space, I know even yeah. less about yeah. it than, than you. But anyway, the um, space is becoming militarized, mm-hmm. right? And apparently Russia has taken out some of its own satellites, targeted them just as a test to see how you do that. And apparently it's a really dangerous thing because there's a, there's a problem with um, particles, metal, small bits of metal, circulating in the... Uh, you know, in, in sort of the lower the lower parts of, of outer space that are where, where most of the satellites circulate. And so uh, it's becoming an area where it may, satellites may not be able to function. And so that, you know, there, there needs to be something like the nuclear test ban treaty, perhaps for, you know, for outer space uh, to address the kind of problems I mentioned. Bruno and Samar, I see hands. <laughs> just, just to give a small uh, European dimension to it, the European Space Program is so integrated with the Russian, with Russian scientists and and with the uh, Russian Space Program that the current sanctions are really putting at risk the whole. European space program. So kind of there is a, a, a North American, you know, Russia cooperation dimension, but but the kind of the, uh, you know, today the problematic one is really the European dimension. Uh, I fully agree with, with, uh, with uh, Nick when he says that <coughs> he has been frustrated over 10 years about people obsessing with, his, with the dichotomy and whether or not we cross the red line, you know, whether we are fully autonomous or not, as if the problems only started when we cross when we cross that line. Um, of course, I have uh, more comments, but I would just uh, I would like to ask uh, Filipa if she could say something a little bit more about uh, gain of function research when it comes to you know viruses, etc. Uh, we don't have to enter into you know the you know the lab leak theory on the origins of COVID, etc. But certainly, the the current the current pandemic. The past pandemic, I don't know, uh, has put a lot of focuses on, on on biosecurity and you know what problems may arise from specific types of research, the security of the labs where this happens. So, I like and given that there is certainly a lot of machine learning uh, put in the, into these processes, I think it would uh, I'll be very interested in knowing a little bit more. I think we can collect Samar's question as well, and then yeah. Uh, thank you so much. My name is Samar, and <clears throat> I'm doing doctoral research at Prio on civilian drones and their regulatory challenges. Very interesting presentation, and uh, I really found it very engaging, all the points of view and comments. Uh, my question is a little bit more broad, in a sense, and, and trying to, the, the questions that were asked by other people, just trying to connect them, in a sense that, how do you see, where is, uh, because this whole topic about global competition for AI tech dominance, where do you see us go- heading to the future? Because we have, to put it very simply, we have three different systems. We're U.S., less regulatory, more flexible. Then you have China, more authoritarian. Then you have EU, 
more uh, restrictive in terms of its regulation, and especially with the emergence of AI Act and all these DPDA, all the regulations. How do you see the future of uh, AI tech dominance in this whole environment? I mean, already when we talk about space, the, <clears throat> the satellites are mostly, if I'm not mistaken, uh, most of the satellites are actually not EU, are not originated by EU. We already see the effects uh, in terms of tech dominance when it comes to the system that EU has and how it's somehow, uh, <laughs> I'm going to say this, but uh, you can disagree, but hampering the, the innovation in some ways in EU. So the future, yeah, principally EU values and democracy and legitimacy are very important. But when it comes to AI tech dominance, where does EU stand in the future with this approach, especially when we see what's happening currently at the in the world? Thank Thanks you. so much. Could I collect some really short answers? I know I'm asking a lot of you, but uh, we're almost it's almost ten. Please. On that, that point, uh, Samar, uh, I think it's a mistake to believe that regulation is an impediment to innovation. Uh, actually, it can be the other way around, because companies don't want to rate; they don't want to start developing, um, you know, innovative products if they fear there's going to be a, a regulatory uh, hold on them some years down the road. So they're much more comfortable knowing what the rules of the game are up front, right? So that that will facilitate innovation. So yeah, uh, thanks for the question, Bruno, on, on gain-of-function. So gain-of-function is just trying to make viruses and bacteria even more dangerous. So make them able to spread faster uh, or uh, m make them affect you, make you even sicker. Um, it's part of a, a larger package of incredibly high-risk biological research that we're seeing uh, increasing, has been increasing. Um, in response to the pandemic, we will also see more people involved in this kind of research, more projects on this, and we're seeing more and more of these um, maximum containment labs being built around the world. They have traditionally been in the Western world. We're now seeing a massive increase in uh, the rest of the world, uh, Asia in particular, where issues around safety uh, and regulation are much looser. So uh, the risks of accidental releases... Uh, related to research are uh, definitely increasing. We're also seeing more viral prospecting where um, scientists actively go into bat caves to find new viruses that may spill over in the future. Um, uh, also increasing risks of exactly that kind of uh, pandemic being triggered through that kind of activity. So uh, we need to do a lot more in terms of oversight there. And I just wanted to tie that back to your point, Henrik, which was great about, you know, much uh, relies on ethics and corporate governance of companies themselves. Uh, I think uh, what we really need in terms of new arms control today is to be very clear about what responsible science consists of today. So we don't talk about just what relates to bioscience, what relates to AI, but what in general responsible science uh, is about today. We have to be clear about the expectations that we as a society set on scientists, outline those standards, and then engage in education and awareness raising. There's a hand over there, please. <laughs> 
Yes, uh, thank you. Uh, just a, a quick uh, comment from my uh, from this side. I'm I'm Ernest Storm. I work at the uh, uh, Department of of Security Policy and Operations in the Norwegian Ministry of Defence. Uh, I also want to to uh, thank the panelists for a very interesting session, uh, which highlights the different aspects and importance of discussing. AI uh, also in the uh, academic uh, sphere that can um, uh, gives us knowledge uh, to be able to make the the right decisions. Um, I just want to comment on the um, uh, Rita's point on the maturity level of of AI. So so it's important to 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 assess to be able to understand the implications we must understand the maturity level of course and also to remember that uh, ai is much uh, many different things you have maturity levels in the different ai applications as we see here in, in the uh, biofield uh, so that's also very uh, important to remember and also the uh, but at the same time uh, the tech development is not linear. Uh, you could easily find uh, um, uh, experience breakthrough uh, suddenly in one of the technologies in one application. So, so that's also important to remember. And also just quick comment on the regulation. Um, it's, I think, also made the point here. It's important to not sort of use the baseline as the science fiction implementations of the technology as a baseline for how we want to regulate uh, and that should not be the starting point for the international dialogue on on uh, possible regulation uh, uh, actions but but thank you very much for a very interesting uh, discussion thank you thank you so much i think unless there are any last minute comments or questions um we're five minutes over the uh, over 10 so i think we can we can wrap this up. Um, we've touched on a lot, um, and yet I feel like somehow we just scratched the surface. So I think that this is hopefully a, a push to uh, to have more of these conversations um, in the future. I'd like to thank our panelists and Philippe and Rita, of course, for flying into Oslo, Nick and Greg for their comments, and uh, for everybody else for uh, for coming. Um, last but not least, Taylor and Giacomo for for setting it up and for the and the amazing comms team for making sure everything runs smoothly. Um, and I'll encourage whoever wants to and can stay for a few minutes to mingle, get some more coffee and, and tea, and come and talk to us and to uh, and to each other. But uh, for now, thank you so much for today. Thank you.